What does the Bible say about sex? How does God feel about sex? Does he think it's some low, dirty, shameful thing that we humans do because we're just like animals and we have these lusts that need to be satisfied and it should only be done in the dark and quickly and just for procreation? Or is there more to it than that? And speaking of sexuality, how does God really feel about homosexuality? Does God hate homosexuals as certain so-called Christian extremists say? Or again, is there more to it than that? Well, obviously there is. And we're going to talk about sexuality in this week's episode of the Faith by Reason podcast. Welcome to the podcast. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. Please check it out. Tons of great information there. And we are talking about the laws, uh, Levitical law, and what it has to say about human sexuality and a lot of the myths and misconceptions that have grown around sexuality. And I want to dispel some some of those myths and really talk about why God says what he says about sex and why it's to our benefit. And as I said, this study is the first addendum in our look at the, the Jewish law, the Levitical law, as part of the fifth dispensation, which is the dispensation of the law. It's when God gave the Jewish people his commandments in Leviticus and Deuteronomy as to what he expects from them and how he expects them to behave and interact with each other. And a big part of that, a very controversial part of the Levitical law is, of course, sex and sexuality. So before we dive into what Leviticus, what the Bible says about sex, let's do another, just a quick overview of what we learned last week um, about the, the law, the purpose of the law. The law basically served three purposes. The first purpose of the law was to define sin, to give a comprehensive definition for what sin is. There was no definition before this and all the other dispensations from Adam all the way up to the Exodus, God did not give people a definitive list of what he considers sin. They were, I won't say they're on their own, but they, of course, in each dispensation, God deals with man differently. And we know we, everyone knows right and wrong. We have a conscience, but it, God gave man sort of a, a free hand to an to answer those open-ended questions that uh, formed each dispensation and how we reacted reacted and re- related to each other. And of course, at every dispensation, man got worse and worse without any guidance. So it would only be right for God to start giving guidance. And so that was the first purpose of the law was to give that guidance. Here is definitively what sin is in God's eyes. So now you have no excuse. If you do right, then you know God is pleased. If you do wrong, he's not pleased and you're sinning. So that was purpose number one. The second purpose was to sanctify Israel as God's ambassadors, as his chosen nation. So God gave laws that were personal and communal. The personal laws were things like, you know, the kosher laws, clean and unclean food so that the people would be healthy. Talking about how to deal with diseases and how to um, manage uh, times when, you know, we would be more subject to diseases. So to keep the the people personally healthy and keep keep them sanctified in that sense. And also... There were, you know, communal and uh, civic laws, laws about inheritance and marriage, which we'll talk about, and you know how to manage land, how to deal with with um, each other in a productive manner. And those, again, those laws were meant to set Israel apart as a healthy and productive and prosperous nation. And the last part of the law, which we will uh, begin talking about in the next podcast, are the ceremonial, uh, liturgical laws that were put in place in order to usher in the advent of the Redeemer, the one who would redeem uh, us from original sin and 
and I'll reverse the mistake that Adam made that, you know, caused us all to be separated from God and allow us to once again be like God so that we can be with God and uh, fulfill the, the meaning of life, which is God's plan, plans for us, to, for us to live with him forever. So that was the purpose of the law. And this section of the law that deals with sexuality is that is in that second section, the, the, um, the community laws. So let's just dive in and look in a, in a broad sense at what the, the Levitical laws say about sex. So look at it in category. I'm not going to read all the Levitical laws. It would take too long and I want to try to keep this podcast short. So let's look at them in broad categories. The laws are controversial, but most of them actually aren't that controversial. Some of them are things that I think everyone, even if you're not, uh, if you're not a believer, even if you're secular, you would probably agree that some of these sex, sexual laws in Leviticus are things that you have no problem with. For example, there's a set of laws against bestiality that he, God says in Leviticus, you can't have sex with animals. I think 99% of us are okay with that. No matter what side of the faith spectrum you are on, the vast majority of people think it's a good idea to not have sex with animals. Um, another set of laws say you shouldn't have sex with children. Well, that's, again, unless you're a pedophile, and if you are, then we don't care about your opinion. But, again, most 99% of people are okay with those laws. And then there are the sexual laws that say you cannot have sex with your relatives, with your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your aunt, blah, 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 so forth and so on. And, again, the vast majority of us are perfectly okay with laws. I, we don't want to have sex with our relatives. I, I don't. I I love my mother dearly, don't want to have sex with her. Love my dad, don't want to have sex with him either. I don't want to have sex with my brother, or I don't have a sister, but if I did, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want to have sex with her, or my uncles, or my aunts, or my... And also, you can't even have... Don't have sex with your stepbrother, or, or I mean, with your step-siblings, or your stepmother or stepfather. Um, both my parents are divorced. They both remarried. Um, I love my stepmother dearly, don't want to sleep with her. Uh, my stepfather, uh, I could kind of take him or leave him. My mom didn't actually make a great choice with her second marriage. But <laughs> again, the point is, you don't have sex with relatives. The Bible says that most people don't have a problem with that. So why would God even need to put those kind of laws in the Bible? It seemed pretty self-evident. Don't have sex with animals, kids, and your relatives. Well, he did it, again, to sanctify Israel because during that time, those kind of things happened. Bestiality happened. It was part of pagan worship. We'll get to that in a sec. And, you know, sex with children happened. It was pretty rampant. Um, in Greek and Roman culture, sex with, with children was was not, was considered perfectly acceptable. God wanted to sanctify Israel. First of all, because God does not want you to corrupt innocent children. And again, it was to sanctify Israel and show them, have them be a separate, distinct nation. And, well, I mean, let's talk about some practical things about having sex with close relatives. I know it sounds weird, but no. If you, when you go all the way back, and we're talking like all the, all the way back to Adam and Eve and their first sets of children, you you kind of had to have sex with your close relatives because there was nobody else there. I mean, there's the old conundrum, which honestly I, I don't think is very difficult to answer. But um, atheists and secularists always think they can stump Christians by asking them, "Well, who did Cain have? Who did Cain marry?" It says Cain marries one. Well, who did he marry? Well, it's not that big of a mystery. He obviously married his sister one of his sisters, or possibly even a niece. I mean, it's theoretically possible that Abel had a, a child, a female child, before he was killed. Because if you look at the, the ages and, and do the math with um, the genealogies, uh, Cain and Abel were somewhere between 60 and, 70, 60 and 80 years old when Cain murdered Abel. 60 to 70 years old is, 
it's pretty, you know, well, for us it's old. For them it's not, it wasn't that old because they, you know, in the antediluvian period before the flood, human beings lived for several hundred years, up to 700 years. So in, when you were in your 80s, you were still kind of a youngster. Nevertheless, that was more than enough time for Abel, because Cain and Abel were, were um, Adam and Eve's first male children, but they also had daughters. This was perfectly possible that during his 60-ish years on earth, that Abel took one of his sisters and married her and had a daughter who would have been marrying age by the time Cain killed him. Again, the Bible doesn't say that. It's speculation, but I'm saying you can't rule it out. The bottom line is Cain married his, his close relative, and, and most people for the first few hundred years of human of human history, post-Adam and Eve, were marrying close relatives because there was nobody else to marry. And at the time, the genetics were pure enough you know adam and eve were perfectly genetically pure and their first few descendants would have been very pure as well so there wouldn't have been much of a problem uh, today uh, not it, it's illegal to marry a close relative well not only because it's gross but also because because our genetics are so corrupted now is a very high likelihood that if you give birth to a child that child's gonna have some serious genetic defects um which you know you, you don't want but again that was not a problem in the you know the, the first few hundred years of humanity and even um after the flood when there was only eight people left uh, noah his wife and his three sons and their wives so there had to be some some intermarrying of close relatives in but they were still fairly close to to genetic purity that it, it didn't result in you know a lot of genetic issues but of course things deteriorated rapidly on the genetic level after the flood and and once the population had enough volume then it was no longer got no longer allowed folks to to intermarry with close relatives because again for genetic disease reasons but it was still rampant in the pagan nations around uh, Israel um, why well not just because they were degenerates but there was actually a somewhat practical reason that they intermarried some groups intermarried closely in the pagan nations and this is slightly off topic but not really because we had been talking about but, you know, a few uh, for the past couple of months before the the study of this dispensation, we we were talking about fallen angels and demons and all that stuff. And one of the reasons that some folks intermarried was to preserve the bloodlines. Well, why would they want to preserve bloodlines? Well, we we do it to this day in the royal families, but that's but in the beginning, a lot of these royal bloodlines had Nephilim blood in them. With the Nephilim, we've talked about them quite a bit in the past. The Nephilim were the product of the of relationship between fallen angels and human women. They would come together sexually. We've talked about it plenty of times in the past. It's in the Bible. It starts with Genesis 6 and elsewhere. They would come together. They would have children. And these children, these hybrid, half-human, half-angelic um, hybrids, were called Nephilim. And they were uh, physically imposing. They had spiritual power. They were very powerful people. And it happened, you know, during the flood period, which was the catalyst for the flood. And then it happened after. The Bible says that there were Nephilim on the earth after that flood period. And as we talked about in that last series, um, a lot of these so-called um, gods, small g, that the pagans worshipped were fallen angels and Nephilim. They worshipped these people and they became their leaders. They became their kings and queens. So there, many of their physical kings and queens were the result of were these Nephilim hybrids and they wanted to preserve that bloodline, not have it diluted with regular human blood as much as possible. So they would make sure that these Nephilim families only married each other. 
And, you know, this isn't just speculation. There are legends that are rampant throughout um, history of these uh, royalty, these leaders of nations, all having Nephilim characteristics, many of them being very tall. Roman emperors, because Nephilim were, were giants as well as, you know, uh, that was one of their physical characteristics is that they were they were physically tall. They were very big people. And you had several Roman emperors who were said to be seven, eight feet tall. Um, you had uh, Alexander the Great is an example. Alexander the Great, we all know about him. He it, it is said that he is a product of his mother having intercourse with some type of serpent god. That Philip of Macedon is, was not the real father of Alexander, but that he he was sired from his mother and some type of serpent god. And Alexander the Great was known to be very tall. He was also known to have blonde hair, which was very very unusual um, in in that er, in uh, in that area. And again, it's believed he was he might have been Nephilim. And even like I said, even today you have these royal bloodlines. Granted, they they don't talk about this aspect of it, but the reason that they want to preserve their royal bloodline is because they they must believe there's something special in the blood. So the royals in England and in other parts of Europe and all all around the world, you have to be a member of that extended family. Granted, they aren't marrying their brothers and sisters necessarily, but they are marrying cousins and things like that. But so you aren't going to be married into a royal family unless you have royal blood. So there must there is some practical reason there must be for them to want to keep that blood pure. And I think that practical reason is that they, it's not, I don't think it's just tradition. I, I think that they sincerely want to preserve whatever spir special spiritual characteristics they have in the blood. I'm not going to go any further into that. There's, because I could go on a serious rabbit trail about the royal families and things like that, but uh, not going to go there. Anyway, the point is that God did not want this for Israel. He wanted to, them to be sanctified. So he did not want them um, marrying their uh, any close relatives or having sex with any close relatives. So again, those are those are sex rules that most people don't have a problem with. But so let's talk about the rules that people do have a problem with. So God has kind of told us who we don't have sex with, but who can we have sex with? Well, according to the Bible, it's very clear that God that sex is only permissible with a person you are married to. You are only to have sex with your spouse and no one else. Period. Now, does that mean that God is a prude who doesn't want you to go off to college and sow your oats and have experiences and learn about new <laughs> positions or whatever? No, because God makes it very clear in the Bible. Paul talks about this, that once you're married, the marriage bed, no matter, it's undefiled. So no matter what you want to do in the marriage bed, it's between two consenting married people. God is okay with it. In fact, the whole book of the uh, Song of Songs, or also called the Song of Solomon, is a celebration of two people who are betrothed to each other, who enjoy the, each other's sexuality. They enjoy each other sexually. It's kind of hard to, to tell sometimes because, it's, especially if you read the King James Version or some of the older translations, or even some of the newer translations, when they try to be really polite and um, use euphemisms instead of the real language, but the entire book of the Song of Songs is about two people who desire each other deeply, sexually, and then they get, then they have, then they're married, and they just glory in each other's bodies. If God didn't like sex, the Song of Songs would not be in the Bible. I mean, it's if you really understand the language that's, that's saying that it is pretty vivid sexually, and it shows that God celebrates 
sex. Not only does God celebrate sex, I mean, God, sex doesn't feel good by accident. Feeling good was not a, an unfortunate byproduct of sex. I mean, because we have this, this unfortunate impression that God is someone who just thinks that, again, sex is some low, dirty animal thing that we have to do in order to procreate, but we should only do it in the dark, really quick. You know, you shouldn't even, don't look each other in the eye. In fact, you should just like poke a hole in a sheet, in your bed sheet, and go for it that way. No, that is completely wrong. And it's an unfortunate byproduct of people not understanding what sex and marriage is. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But because they want to keep people sexually pure, they've overdone it. They've gotten religious, and that's what religion does. It takes what God has said, and then man adds on to it to try to make it better. So they say, well, if you should only have sex with the person you're married with, well, let's add on to that by saying you shouldn't even think about sex. Sex can't be good. Sex must be dirty. And so you need to confine it and limit it as much as possible and just make it some you know, thing you do in the dark really quick. Well, that's not what God wants. In fact, and here's something that's going to blow you away. Do you know that when you have sex... You are worshiping God? That's right. When you have sex with, with your spouse, let me give you that caveat. When you are having sex with your spouse, that is a form of worship. God made sex feel good. He made it so rapturous. He made it so full of ecstasy. It is a celebration. Every time you have sex with your spouse, you are worshiping God. You do not divorce God from your sexual experience. God should be a part of your sexual experience. God created sex for your enjoyment. Why? Because what is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is church and marriage. We talked about this way, way back in the, in the early podcast and in, in the early part of the blog. We are going to be married to Christ. We are the bride of Christ. So marriage is a model of eternity. And sex is a huge part of marriage. So that means the ecstasy that we feel during sex is a model of what we're going to feel for eternity with God. And that should make you excited, <laughs> literally. Because if the ecstasy that you feel during sex is just a model of the true ecstasy that you will feel forever, well, that's pretty darn good. I mean, especially if, if any of you out there have had sex, hopefully you have and with your married partner, the person you're married to, you know that that feeling you have during sex, that's incredible, but you only have it briefly. Imagine having that feeling forever. That's what the meaning of life, that's what heaven really is. And that should get you, again, extremely excited in more ways than one. So God does not hate sex. God glories in sex. And when you are having sex with your spouse, you are worshiping God. So, you know, go to your wife tonight or your husband. If if he's if your husband's not one who's into sex a lot, and hopefully he is. But go to your spouse and say, hey, you know what? Let's worship God tonight. Let's see how that goes over. Anyway, so why what's the problem there what is the, the issue that people have well the issue people have is with sex before marriage yeah that that's the big one sex before marriage now here's and here's why it's an issue especially in the church if you are in the church I grew up in the church and I was single most of my for most of my life I've been single more longer than I've been married and if you in if you're in the church you notice there are two distinct uh, message groups there are messages for the married people with families and there are messages for the singles. Now, if you are married and you have kids, you have family, there are tons of things that church has to say to you. They can talk, talk, to you about, talk to you about your marriage, how you please your husband, how to please your wife, how to get along with your kids, how to raise your kids. They have marriage counselors. They have marriage retreats. They have marriage get-togethers. They have all kinds of things for marriage. There are tons and tons of messages for marriage. If you go to Christian bookstores, there are tons of books about marriage. Heal your marriage. Have a better marriage. Improve your marriage. Enjoy your marriage. 
tons of stuff on marriage, tons of stuff on kids. The, the church has many, 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 many messages for married people. But if you're single, the church only has one message for you. Don't have sex. That's it. That's the only thing churches have to say to single people. Don't have sex. If you're married, yeah, the church has plenty to say to you. All kinds of subjects back and forth, up and down, sideways. If you're single, the church can only tell you don't don't have sex with anybody. Keep yourself pure. Wow, what an exciting message for single people. Is there any wonder why there are so few young people in the church after college? Because when you're in college, you're in your 20s, what do you want to do? You want, you want to go have sex with people. And if you go to someplace every week and the only, the only message they have to tell you is don't have sex because God doesn't like it. Well, that's going to skew your idea of the church and skew your idea, skew your idea of God. Now, that's why I'm here to help dispel myths. And here is a huge one. Are you ready for this? Brace yourself. The Bible does not say you can't have sex before marriage. Let me say that again, because you probably have a shocked look on your face. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you can't have sex before marriage. The Bible does not say anything about sex before marriage. Don't believe me? Go on your computer. Go to your, you're probably already on your computer. Go to your local, your, uh, your local Bible software or your, or your Bible internet site that has the, the entire Bible on it in a search function, easy to find, and type in sex before marriage. You will not find a single verse that says there is no sex before marriage. Now, before you start calling me a liar and a heretic, let me explain why. There's a very practical reason why the Bible doesn't say say anything about sex before marriage, or and the Bible doesn't say you can't have sex before marriage, because biblically speaking, there is no such thing as sex before marriage. Huh? Let me say it again. Biblically speaking, there is no such thing as sex before marriage. Why? Well, let's understand what marriage is, biblically speaking. But let's contrast it with what we think of marriage. Our current definition of marriage, especially for the last thousand years, in marriage is a ceremony where you and your and your spouse to be, and it will stand before a judge or excuse me, a priest or a preacher, a minister of some kind, and you will make promises to each other and you will sign some paperwork that binds you together legally and you, through your local uh, civic authority, and then you're married, then you go have sex. That is our current definition of marriage. That is not the biblical definition of marriage. In the Bible, marriage is a covenant that is sealed or enacted when you have sex with someone. The reason there is no such thing as sex before marriage in the Bible is because in the Bible, sex is marriage. Let me say that again. Sex is marriage. When you have sex with someone, you have married them in God's eyes because the sexual act is the sealing of the marriage covenant. That means, brace yourself, the first person you had sex with when you were a teenager or in college or whenever, the first person you had sex with, you married them. In God's eyes, you married that person. Um, you can feel free to hit the pause button while you just recoil in horror from, from that idea. But that's what happened. When you marry, sex is marriage. So, there, so there can't be any sex before marriage because as soon as you have sex, you're married. Now, there can be sex before a marriage ceremony, but that ceremony is, is man-made. God didn't make that. In fact, um, the biblical wedding feast 
you have sex first, then you have the ceremony. The wedding feast happened after the, the married couple had sex. They, they would feast for seven days after that. that, that that's how it would work. So in, in our culture, you have the ceremony, then you have sex. No, with, when, in the original culture, of that um, the Jewish culture, when, when God created the marriage covenant, you have sex first, then you have your celebration. You celebrate the marriage after it because sex is marriage. So that's why there can be no sex after. That's why there can be no, no such thing as sex before marriage. And, but if you are married to someone and you have sex with someone else, you've committed adultery. So that first person you had sex with, you married them. Then if you guys did not both consciously break that marriage covenant, the next person you had sex with, you were committing adultery with them. That is what adultery is. Adultery is having sex with someone who you are not married to. You have sex with them, you're married to them. Next person you have sex with, adultery. And that in adultery is a sin. So that is the reason why God preaches wants sexual purity. Not because God doesn't want you to enjoy sex, but he doesn't want you to sin. So if you're promiscuous, you're marrying and committing adultery with a bunch of other people. And another thing about sex is that sex chemically bonds you to someone. The reason that God made sex such a a, a, a feel-good thing, something that, that releases so many pleasure chemicals in you is because God wants to bind you to that person that, so that you will want to desire that person forever. When you have sex with someone, um, chemicals are released in your body that are identical to opioids. And by opioids, I mean heroin. Uh, morphine, oxycodone. Actually, oxycodone is one. Oxycodone is one of the chemicals that is released in your in your body when you have sex with someone. It is addictive. It is sex is meant to uh, to addict you, in a good way, obviously, to your spouse, so that you are sexually addicted to them, so that you only want sex with them, and you are bonded with them. So when you have bad times, you don't want to go anywhere. You want you, you're going to stick it out and work it out because you are you're addicted to them. And but that's another reason why being promiscuous is bad because you're now you're getting bonded to a bunch of different people, and that leads to all kinds of heartache, which I'm sure many of us can attest to. The heartache you get when you when you're sexually involved in some with someone or it doesn't work out, and you get involved with someone else. That's why there's so much heartbreak and anguish in all these sexual relationships we have with multiple people. And another bad thing is the more, like with any chemical addiction, the more you do something, the more you build up a tolerance to it. So if you have sex with multiple people and you release those those addictive chemicals with multiple people, eventually it gets to the point where you get you get habituated to it and you don't feel that bond is strong. So if you've been promiscuous most of your life and you finally decide I'm ready to get married to someone, guess what? Your bond with that person is not going to be anywhere near as strong as it would have been if you had kept yourself pure. And that's probably one of the reasons why the divorce rate is so high is because that strong bond isn't there anymore because we all want to go out and sow our wild oats and have sex with as many people as possible before we settle down and marry someone. But, by the, but if we do that, when we marry someone, that the bonding chemicals do not affect us as strongly as before. So when, it's, when things get rough, you're like, you know what, I'm out of here. I'm not dealing with this anymore. I'm going to get a divorce. And I think that has a lot to do with why the divorce rate is so high. Okay, so sex is marriage and adultery is when you have sex with someone who you're not married to. And, um, you know, something funny just happened to my audio. So hopefully this is not noticeable. If it is, hopefully I can correct it to it. Anyway, so sex is marriage. Adultery is when you have sex with someone who you're not married to. So then what is fornication? And that is a really good question. It's something that you will find fairly often uh, spoken about in the church. Fornication. We need to stop. These kids need to stop fornicating. 
but what is fornication? Unfortunately, most Christians have a very, very wrong definition of fornication. And that incorrect definition of fornication comes from the fact that most people, Christians and secular, have the wrong definition of marriage, sex, and adultery, which we've just been talking about. So let's talk about what folks say fornication is. If you ask the average Christian what fornication is, they will say that fornication is, um, is, is promiscuity. It's sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage. Well, we know it can't be sex before marriage. We've, we've just been talking about the fact that there is no such thing as sex before marriage. And so that's not fornication. And we know that when you have sex outside of marriage, when you have sex with someone you're not married to, that's adultery. So then again, where does fornication come in? Well, fornication does have a sexual component, but it's not just having sex with someone. Otherwise it wouldn't meet one of the other definitions. No, fornication always has a worship component to it. Fornication, the definition, the definition of fornication in the Bible is when you have sex with someone as a part of false worship, worshiping an, an idol, worshiping an idol God, a false God. That is what fornication is. And it was very prevalent during the time the law was given. It was very prevalent in ancient times. And guess what, folks? It's even prevalent to this day. Why? And, and why don't people understand that? Why Why have you probably, you probably never heard that definition of fornication. And the reason being is that very few of us Christians have the supernatural worldview. Now, we've been talking about the supernatural worldview for a long time. We've been talking about it all the way since we began our dispensational studies. The supernatural worldview, if you do not have the supernatural worldview, you will never fully understand the Bible. You will misunderstand the Bible. You will miss very important aspects of the Bible if you don't have the supernatural worldview. And you can go to the right navigation bar, hit the uh, uh, category for supernatural worldview, and you will see what I'm talking about. But very, very briefly, the supernatural worldview is the understanding that alongside our physical world that we experience every day, there is a spiritual world, which is just as real, if not more real than our physical world, and they impact each other. What happens on the physical world affects the spiritual world, and what happens in the spiritual world affects the physical world, and sex is the same way. Sex is a physical act in, in, in our realm, but it has great spiritual effect. Remember what I said before, sex is worship. Sex is a form of worship, and worship is a spiritual thing, and not just for God, but also for the false gods, for the demons and the fallen angels. Um, sex has a tremendous effect in the spiritual realm, and evidence of that is the fact that many, if not all, of the ancient pagan rituals involved sex as a part of their worship and it was pretty rampant you probably read about it in in history you'd have you know the roman orgies the greek orgies uh, they in all the cultures they would have all these sexual rites that were a part of worshiping all these various false gods isis and jupiter and zeus and especially aphrodite the goddess of love and all the other um goddess gods and goddesses had, had there, was a, there was a sexual component to it. In fact, they had what was called temple prostitutes in the ancient days who, who were literally women whose, who, quote unquote, priestesses, whose job it was to have sex with you. When you went to pay your blessings, when you went to worship these false gods, you would pay money to this so-called priestess and you would go in and you would have a sexual ritual with her. And that was part of the worship. That is what fornication is. And when I say it happens to this day, 
I don't just mean in some of the overtly satanic religions where um, sacrificing a virgin or having sex with a virgin is a, a thing that they that they want you to do. And they, but even when you look at, um, I guess you could call it mainstream paganism, the the Wiccans and these other witches and all these sexual cults. In, in, also have a crazy sexual component to them and that is part of worshiping these false gods and if you just want to get really deep into it since you know for the past few months we were talking about the dark side the fallen angels demons satan and all that and how much control they have over many of our secular experiences you will the re, that sex releases power and that's why they want all that fornication that illicit sex they want you to have sex when you listen to certain types of music when you are in certain when in in, in in um in Hinduism you have tantric sex. They the reason that promiscuity is so prevalent in our culture as you know the Christian influence declines and the secular influence rises, it all and all that occultism that goes with it, they want as much sex as possible because sex really illicit sex, sex outside of God, of the confines of God of, of of godly marriage gives power to these dark entities. I'm not gonna go too much deeper in that because it's not my expertise. There are other places you can go. Um, I mentioned uh, Russ Dizdar as, as one example. There are lots of folks who are really into the demonology and they can give you more information on that. But suffice to say that illicit sex uh, releases spiritual energy that these fallen entities somehow take advantage of. I can't tell you exactly how. I'm not an expert in angelic biology and how they utilize sex for sexual energy for power or food or whatever. I'm not going to go there because I, I, I can't give you the specifics, but I can tell you that it does they the reason there's a reason that they want that illicit sex it's a reason why they want that sex that um they want people to have sex as as a form of worship and in these um these state these certain um, altered states of worship because it gives them power and god obviously doesn't want that so he does not want for you to commit fornication he doesn't want you knowingly having um sex as a part of an act of worship, even be it overt worship, or even if you think it's, you know, you, there's, they talk about spiritual sex. We have sex with someone and it transport, transports you to a higher plane of existence. And, well, you know, with all this crazy new age stuff, guess what you're doing, folks? You are fornicating then because then you are, sorry, my dog's barking. I'll, <laughs> give me a second. Let me take care of her. Okay. Sorry about that. But as I was saying, um, when you have sex in these altered states, then you are committing fornication because you are having sex as part of worship. So that's what fornication is. It's not just a bunch. Of, when you, you have a bunch of college kids going off the spring break and having a lot of uh, having a lot of sex, being promiscuous, they're not fornicating. Okay, they are <laughs> marrying and having a lot of adultery, but they're not fornicating. So we need to make these definitions clear. Definitions are important. It's important that we define these words correctly, and we need to know the difference between marital sex, adultery, and fornication. And that's and those are the definitions. And that's what that's what fornication is. It is sex with a spiritual worship component. And in case you don't believe me, in case this seems too foreign for you. Uh, keep in mind what God says about it in the Bible. Many times when groups of people, the Israelites or anyone else, when they start worshiping false gods, um, the God, the God of the Bible, calls it fornication. He tells Israel, you committed fornication with this idol. Now, he doesn't mean that everyone in Israel had physical sex with an idol. No, he's speaking about spiritual He's speaking spiritually. They've worshiped, they've worshiped a false god, and he calls that fornication. He is, God links clearly 
fornication with spirituality, with a false worship. In uh, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, there is the infamous woman who rides the beast. And in Revelation 17, the description of, it, of her is that this is the woman with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that all the kings of the earth physically has sex with this woman because this woman is actually symbolic. She is the woman who rides the beast is symbolic of all false religions, beginning with Semiramis and Babel, which we talked about in an earlier podcast. So she's symbolic. So the kings of the earth did not have physical sex with a symbolic person. He is speaking of false religion, the false worship, the false gods that have been a part of many, many, many kingdoms, if not all kingdoms that have ruled earth. So fornication is sex as a part of worship. All right, so let's uh, wrap things up by talking about the other big controversial aspect of the Levitical sexual laws, and one that's especially controversial um, in our current culture of the last you know, 20, 30 years, and that is homosexuality and what Leviticus says about homosexuality. And the Bible is pretty clear. It doesn't mince words, so I'm not gonna mince words. The Bible says that homosexuality having sexual relationships with someone who is the same gender as you is an abomination. God finds it abominable. Why? Is because God hates sex, uh, hates homosexuals, excuse me. No, that's not it. Despite what people in certain crazy extremist quote-unquote Christian sects say, like the, um, was it Westboro Baptist or, I forget, they were in the late 90s, there was some group in the Midwest, they, I don't know, it was West something Baptist Church, they were infamous for making these signs that said horrible things like God hates fags and homos are going to burn in hell and all this kind of stuff. No, God died for all of us, no matter what your sexual orientation, no matter what your desires are, no matter what type of sex you prefer, Christ died for all sin, not just heterosexual sin. He died for all sin which means he God so loved the world that he gave his son for everyone. So everyone can be redeemed. God loves the world, not just the heterosexual, the straight world. So God does not hate gays. Let's just get rid of that idea. However, God hates sin. He hates their sin. He hates the sin of homosexuals. He also hates the sin of heterosexuals. He hates my sin. He hates your sin. He hates all sin, not the person. He hates the sin. And there's a very specific reason why he finds homosexuality and abomination. He finds it abominable because of what marriage is. Marriage is a union between one man and one woman. And the reason is because, as I said earlier, sex, uh, marriage is a model of, the, of God's will, of God's plan for us, which is the most important thing for our lives is, is to know God's plan and be a part of it. That is the number one thing that God wants for us is to be part of his plan. That's why he created us. So anything that invalidates that or corrupts that or diverges from that, God would hate it because it's misrepresenting him. God's, if marriage, if, if biblical marriage is a model for God's plan, anything that diverges from the biblical definition of marriage corrupts God's plan. Homosexuality does that because homosexuality is two people of the same gender having sexual relations and that is not the model that God has for his eternity. So when homosexuals do what they do, it is a corruption of, of God's will and God's plan and it misrepresents God's plan and God does not like being uh, misrepresented. That's what taking the name of, of God in vain means. It means misrepresenting God. It doesn't mean you saying, you know, saying a curse word with God. It doesn't mean when you say God damn, 
you're that's not taking the name of God in vain. Taking his name in vain because his name is is who he is. And using that in vain means making it of no effect. So when you homosexuality makes the name of God, the plan of God of no effect because it it completely misrepresents it. So that's the issue. That's why God has a problem with homosexuality. That's why it's an abomination to him because it is a corruption of marriage and marriage is extraordinarily important to God because marriage, again, is a model of God's ultimate plan for humanity. And that's the most important thing to God as far as we are concerned. So anything that corrupts that, God will obviously not see that in a good light. And that's, and that's why God does not approve of homosexuality. But what about, what if homosexual? What if they say, why, I, I love this person I'm with, even though they're the same sex. Why would God be against that? Why would God not want me to be with this person? <sighs> Here's the thing that you have to understand. There is a difference between your feelings and your actions. Many gays will say that they were born that way. And you know what? I'm not going to argue with you. If you are gay and you say that I was born with a desire for someone of the same sex, I was born with a desire. If you're a man and, I was, and you were born for, with a desire for other men, if you're a woman, you're born with a desire for other women. I'm not going to. I'm not going to argue with you. Maybe you were, but that's still not an excuse. You know what? We could, I can make the argument that I was born with a bad temper. When I was a baby, I had a bad temper. To this day, I still have a bad temper. You talk to my parents; they will tell you that I was a, a, a pretty temperamental kid. That is how, and I was born that way. No one had to teach me how to be temperamental. I was born with this temperament. But does it excuse my actions? Can I use that? If, if I were to lose my temper and assault someone, when I'm standing before the judge and he says, why did you assault that person? Could I validly say, hey, Your Honor, um, yeah, I know I, I beat that guy up, but you know, I was born this way. I was born with this temper. It's not my fault. And I was just acting. It's just who I am. It's how God made me. So you shouldn't punish me for being who I am. I'm going to jail anyway. You know why? Because just because you're born with a certain tendency does not excuse your actions. Me being born with a bad temper does not negate the, the, the idea that I have to control myself. I can't just go off and beat people up and run my cars in, other, in my car and other people and get a baseball bat and go start whacking people around because I have a bad temper. No, I'm even though I, I may be angry enough at you that I want to just pummel you, I have a responsibility not to act on it. I can choose not to act on it. I am a human being with volitional will, and I don't have to do everything I feel. And if you are born with a tendency towards someone of the same sex, I will not deny that you have that tendency, that you have that desire, but you have a choice whether or not you are going to act on it. God will not judge you for having the desire. He will judge you for what you do with it. God's not judging me for being angry. God gets angry. Throughout the Bible, God gets angry. There's a, a, a verse that says, be angry but sin not. Jesus got angry. But you can be angry and not sin. So it's not the feeling, it's what you do with it. I mean, I, I am married. And I, there are certain restrictions that I have. And a homosexual, a homosexual may say that that's too restrictive. I want to have sex with other men. I want to have sex with other women if you're a woman. Why can't I? Well, you know what? I'm straight and I sometimes want to have sex with other women. I will see a woman and she is very attractive to me. But I don't do anything about it. I'm married and I don't want to cheat on my wife. So what do I do when I see a woman who is sexually attractive? Nothing. I just keep walking or I turn the other way or I just keep going on with my day. Because just, be, just because I feel a sexual attraction to someone, I don't have to act on it. 
I don't have to, I don't, so I don't go to bars to try to pick up women because I'm married and I'm in a committed, I'm in a committed marriage. So I, I don't go on Tinder or whatever the apps are that, that you do the dating with. And I don't go online to online dating sites or any of that other stuff. I don't do that, even though, sure, would it, would it feel great to have sex with someone? Sure, sex always feels great. But it would, it would also be damaging. So even though I may have the desire to do it, I'm not going to do it. I have the choice as to what I'm going to do with my feelings. And if you're homosexual, you are the same. You have the same choices. And you, and I'm not going to get into the whole homosexual counseling thing. That's just not my area of expertise. But there are people out there who do that, who, who, get, who have recovered from it and live very godly lives and if you're interested in it I suggest you google them again I'm not going to get into it because I don't have the expertise to talk about it but what I to, to talk about it in any productive way but what I will say is that again you may be you may have a feeling you don't have to act on it and we all have feelings you don't act on every day so it's possible and just because you're gay doesn't mean you are a slave to what you feel just like I'm not a slave to my temperament I'm not a slave to anyone else I'm attracted to I'm you can feel what you want and not act on it. And that is your responsibility. It's my responsibility. It's all of our responsibility. We all do it, whether you're gay or straight. We are responsible for our actions. All right. Um, I think that's going to wrap up this podcast. We've covered the sexual laws, what they mean, what they don't mean, what God thinks about sex, what he doesn't think about sex. And now it's time to move on to, to, to wrap up our discussion, our practical discussion of the law when we will talk about the ceremonial laws, those ceremonial laws that look like religion, you know, sacrificing animals in the temple and observing all these different feast days and having all these different offerings and all these different things that God tells you specifically what you have to do to worship him and, and what you can't do when you worship him and how you need to come before him and all these things. And they seem like religion. They seem like, you know, all, all the liturgical stuff that's just so boring in the church. But the truth is there's actually a very, very, practical and exciting reason that God has these ceremonial laws. And, and as I said earlier, they are to usher in the advent of the Redeemer, the most important event in human history. And we will talk about that in the next podcast. So that wraps up this podcast. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, please leave me any comments you want on here on the blog or here on Facebook or on Facebook. Um, please be sure to be please be sure excuse me to subscribe to Faith by Reason. Just putting your your email address in in the right navigation bar, and you will get the new podcasts and blogs when they are posted. And I will talk to you next week.